yet in my GP practice, I was told off many, many times for prescribing HRT and being told how outrageous you're putting these women at risk. And I've said, but I've been sharing decision-making with my patients. They've understood there might be a small risk, but there are many benefits um, to them as well. And then the NICE guidance came out seven years ago. So I thought, great, everyone will now understand how safe HRT is. And that was seven years ago. HRT prescribing has gone up by about 4% from 10% to about 14% of menopausal women. So the message hasn't really got out. Hello and welcome to the Medical Women podcast, the world's first podcast aimed at supporting and empowering medical women in their careers. I'm Dr. Nuthana Bayankaram and it's my honour and joy to be your host as each week we speak to a fantastic guest who's here to help us in our careers. I'm Vice President of the Medical Women's Federation, the largest body of women doctors in the UK and the voice of medical women on medical issues. Join us as each week we hear about a topic that's helpful for all of us in our careers. Hello everybody, welcome back to the Medical Women podcast and I hope that you're enjoying this mini-series that we're doing on women's health in partnership with Health Innovation, Kent, Surrey and Sussex. Thanks so much for all of your lovely comments and feedback. So last week we started to speak about menopause and it's such a huge topic, we could literally do a whole season just on menopause and we still wouldn't have covered enough of it. So this week we are discussing menopause again and our guest this week is Dr Louise Newson who is a GP with a special interest in menopause. Louise has written a fantastic book about menopause and she hosts her own podcast that's all about menopause. I'm sure you will have come across Dr Newson on um, social media but if not then this is a wonderful introduction to her work. So in this episode Louise speaks to us about the different ways in which menopause symptoms can manifest and how we can best manage and support women through the menopause. So it kind of is a continuation of the conversation that I had with the fantastic Catherine Gale last week. So I hope that with both of these menopause episodes, you find them really helpful. Um, Please get in touch if there's other aspects of menopause that you'd love for us to cover in future. And I hope that you find this a really important and informative episode. As I mentioned with the statistics last week, we've got hundreds of thousands of women going through perimenopause and menopause each year, women leaving jobs because of menopause or reducing their hours because of menopause. So it's really, really important that we find ways in which we can better support women particularly in healthcare, where the majority of the workforce, I think about 60% of the workforce are women. So there are going to be more and more women going through perimenopause and menopause in terms of in terms of the workforce. So this is something that's really important for us to, to think about and make sure that we support everyone that goes through this process. So enjoy this episode. And as always, please do share the podcast. It really helps us to to reach our mission of empowering and supporting as many medical women as possible in their careers. So this week we've got our second episode on menopause and 
Marianne, I wonder if you can share a few words for why you think it's really important that we delve deeper into this topic. Thank you so much. And it's fantastic that we've been able to dedicate two episodes to menopause because it's such an important topic and rarely has enough airtime. So at Health Innovation, Kent, Surrey and Sussex, um, this is one of our key areas within our strategy where we want to see change happen. And I think one of the exciting things is, is that the area of femtech, so that is technology for digital and AI for women, has really been captivated by this topic. And there are lots of new solutions and developments happening in this space. So I think it was a great um, episode for people to listen to and start to understand the problem a bit more and what the needs might be. And for those who are innovators or clinical entrepreneurs to really think of some new ideas that we might be able to bring um, to this really challenging problem. So it's lovely to have with me today, Dr. Louise Newsom. Hi, Louise. Welcome to the podcast. I'm sure that lots of our listeners will know who you are, but it would be great to hear your introduction. Oh, thank you. Well, thanks for inviting me. It's a real privilege to be here. So I'm Dr. Louise Newsom. I'm a GP and menopause specialist, but I've not always been a GP, actually, and I've certainly not always been a menopause specialist. Um, I started my medical training in Manchester University. And then after the third year, I took a year out to do a BSc in pathology. So I've got a first class degree in pathology. And then I went back into the clinical part of um, my medical training and then actually got both parts of MRCP. So I'm a member of the Royal College of Physicians and initially wanted to be an oncologist Um, and then couldn't really actually, I'm sure this will resonate with you or might some of the listeners, I couldn't find a role model. I really looked hard to find um, a senior consultant or a consultant who was female that I could identify with. And this was in the uh, mid-1990s, so many years ago. Um, and I was at Manchester um, doing a medical rotation, about to become a medical registrar. And I just couldn't find anyone that was really happy. <laughs> and my husband, I'm very fortunate, I met him when I was 18 at medical school. He's a surgeon. And I said to Paul, I don't think I want to carry on in hospital medicine because I don't want to end up like some of these people. And this was then... Um, uh, easier then to go into general practice in the respect that all I had to do was an obs and gynae job. So I said to some of my consultants who were male, I think I'm going to be a GP. And every single one at the time said, do you know what? I wish I'd done that. I'm really not that happy. And I thought, oh, really? Life is too short. My father actually died when I was nine. He had a glioblastoma. And I just thought every day is, is, is a precious day, isn't it? And I can't do that. And I actually really enjoy medicine. I hope you agree but and listeners agree that it's such a privilege and a joy to be a doctor that I never wanted that passion and energy to be zapped because I wasn't enjoying my job. So I plunged and went into general practice. I remember phoning my mum up and she said, well, that's very disappointing. How am I going to tell your friends? And I said, what do you mean? I'm still a doctor. I'm just not going to be, you know, an oncologist. I just decided it anyway. So that was a, it's a really weird perception. You're only a GP almost. So I did obs and gynae and um, sounds really awful. I didn't enjoy it. I found it wasn't evidence-based enough. It was all a bit, you do this because the consultant says it, but there's not so much evidence. And actually I had no menopause training. So menopause wasn't on the agenda at all. Mm-hmm. I did that in Chester. Then I 
I had a GP, amazing job, actually, uh, someone called John Sanders, who uh, was very inspirational. He said to me, Louise, you're um, quite academic. You're a physician. You're going to be you're awful as a GP. You won't do well at all because you will not put the patient in the centre. And I said, what do you mean? And anyway, then I realised I was very paternalistic with my medicine style. You know, you have this condition, you will take this without actually understanding what the patient's worries and concerns and expectations were. So he taught me a lot about medicine, which I've carried through for the last 25 years, actually. And um, I managed to prove him wrong because I got distinction in my MRCGP exam. Um, And then I went part time because I had my first child. And then I've always worked as a sort of portfolio medic. So I've done a lot of medical education, a lot of medical writing, um, medical writing for healthcare professionals, but also for lay people as well. And Um, I wrote a few books on hot topics for the MRC GP, and that was around the time that the internet was only starting. Sounds like I'm so old, which I suppose I am now. Um, And really notice that, you know, if you've got time, then you can reflect and think. Whereas so much in medicine, we're on this sort of hamster wheel. We do it because we've been taught it and we think that's the right thing to do and we don't challenge it. And I've got quite an inquisitive mind. So going part time and actually when you're writing and educating, you have to know your topic. It's all very well reading an article, but when you have to translate it into words for, you know, patients, you've really got to understand and go back and look at the references and read the evidence. And it's been a sort of skill that now in my work is really useful, actually, when people challenge me about could HRT reduce risk of dementia or whatever, I can, you know, you can tease out the evidence in a more comprehensive way. So it's been really lucky that I've done that, actually. And then I decided to continue with menopause care because I soon realised when you prescribe HRT, women come back happy, which is lovely, of course, making people feel better. But reading the evidence for many years, I've realised that women who take HRT have a lower risk of heart disease and osteoporosis, really important conditions. Yet in my GP practice, I was told off many, many times for prescribing HRT and being told how outrageous you're putting these women at risk. And I've said, but I've been sharing decision making with my patients. They've understood there might be a small risk, but there are many benefits um, to them as well. And then the NICE guidance came out seven years ago. So I thought, great, everyone will now understand how safe HRT is. And that was seven years ago. HRT prescribing has gone up by about 4% from 10% to about 14% of menopausal women. So the message hasn't really got out. Um, so I became a menopause specialist, opened a clinic to help some of my friends get off the antidepressants they'd been given, and then started to play with the media and social media, thinking, let's just empower and educate the women who are suffering or those around them that know women. Um, and wrongly or rightly, I've played, I say played, but I've worked in in the media in a way that I can amplify my message. I get very embarrassed thinking that it's me on somebody's sofa on television, but actually it's a really good way of getting into people. I've um, you know, got a big um, Instagram and social media following, but we also developed Balance app, which is a free app, which has just had a million downloads actually, we found out last week in many countries because the stories I hear of women suffering are just relentless actually and exhausting and sad um so i set up a dedicated menopause clinic four and a half years ago it's a private clinic because i couldn't get a job in the nhs because the nhs didn't and still don't really prioritize menopause care 
So I have 104 clinicians that work with me. We have we see around 4,000 women a month through the clinic who come from all counties. They come from all social, socioeconomic backgrounds and they come because they're underserved by the NHS. They don't want to pay. We don't want to charge them, um, but they want to improve the quality of their life and reduce disease by taking HRT often. But we're very holistic. I've also got a wellbeing centre where we concentrate on other things. So I do yoga there. We have a nutritionist who works very closely with us and sleep experts um so yeah there's a lot going on and I do a lot of education still in the menopause and we're just starting to do some collaborative research as well with other universities too we're funding a PhD student with Liverpool University in suicide prevention um, and we're doing lots of other research because as you know women's health women's research is awful but menopause is diabolical actually since the WHI study in 2002 there's very little that's been done so that was quite a long thing saying why I'm who I am, I suppose. Long introduction. Sorry about that. No, no, not at all. I think it's really helpful to have that background and to hear about all the different things that you do. Um, I'm really interested to hear what it was that kind of got you into doing the work on menopause. Was it seeing that actually this wasn't really this wasn't really being done and not on anybody's agenda? Yeah, I think what really happened when I was thinking about it earlier to prepare for today, um, when I used to work for patient.info, um, I was given all the menopause information for patients, but also for healthcare professionals to update and write because they were up, they were written before the NICE guidance. So I had like about 12 articles that I had to update and they all talked about risk of HRT, risk, 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 nothing about benefit. And so then I spent many weeks actually just getting original references and going and learning for, for fresh on my own rather than listening to noise. Um, and the more I read, the more I thought, goodness, this is quite something. Um, why aren't we talking about the benefits of biologically active hormones in our bodies? And even looking at the history of hormones. So you might know, but when they discovered thyroxine, it was associated with hypothyroidism and Graves' disease. When they discovered insulin, it was associated with diabetes mellitus, of course. When they discovered estrogen, it was associated with vasomotor symptoms. So it was associated with a symptom. No one thought that lack of hormones could have any association with disease. Um, and because of my pathology degree, we did quite a lot of immunology as well. And I'm very interested in the immune system and macrophages, very sad. Because when our immune system is primed, it's very anti-inflammatory and reduces risk, of course, of infections, but disease as well. Whereas I remember having lots of lectures about macrophages that can become pro-inflammatory. So if our immune system isn't primed well, then we get this pro-inflammatory state, which increases our risk of inflammatory diseases, which are heart disease, osteoporosis, diabetes, dementia, clinical depression, Parkinson's disease, um, autoimmune diseases um, and so forth which actually are all the diseases that are associated with the menopause and so we know that estradiol actually can genetically reprogram the way our immune cells work it can increase the number in improve the way that they uh, work so as soon as I sort of had this light bulb moment that actually all those really boring biochemistry lectures and pathology lectures I had actually makes sense and then starting to read articles from the 80s and 90s before the WHI about how important estrogen is for our bodies you just think well it's all there but it's being ignored um, and then you, when you put things into practice you learn so much from your patients and to see women who we see women 
who are often very psychologically distressed in the clinic. We see a lot of women who have um, suicidal thoughts. They've been under psychiatrists. They've been diagnosed with treatment-resistant depression and they're menopausal. And they've had so many psychiatric drugs that we give them HRT for other reasons. And they come back a few months later and say, I I'm, can reduce my quetiapine. I can reduce my lithium. This is the best I felt for years. Why didn't anyone tell me that removing my ovaries would have caused all this? So you see the, the theories in my head and the science, but then it's being translated into, you know, thousands of women that we're helping every month. So, um, so I'm on a bit of a mission to improve the health of women, but it's not all easy, actually, because there's a lot of people that still don't, I wouldn't say believe in because it's looking at the evidence, but they decide they've got no professional curiosity so they're denying the basic science and trying to reduce HRT prescribing and reduce that choice for women and a lot of scaremongering still exists about HRT which you know is very sad because I would be naive if I thought my clinic could treat every woman who needs HRT and I don't want to I the most stressful part of my job is running the clinic because there's a lot of people that we employ and it's hard um, so we've got to try and work out how to get this, the science behind the menopause. It's not just something we have to endure, which, and people still see HRT as a lifestyle drug. Even on an NHS England meeting, I was hearing people say things like, well, of course, people just want to look like Davina. That's why they take HRT. And it's just sad for women, I think. Yeah, it is. So I know kind of there's there's so much for us to learn about menopause and you know 40 minutes isn't enough time to cover it but I think most of us wouldn't really have had any teaching on, on menopause at medical school or a postgraduate level I didn't graduate that many years ago from medical school but we didn't cover menopause at all um, and it's kind of bonkers when you think about it. So it would be great if you could give all of us the education that we've missed out on um, on this podcast. If you can kind of give us like the main things that you think every, every medical woman should know. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Probably one of the most useful menopause things that I was taught as an undergraduate was um, women are more likely to have heart disease over the age of 50 and something protects them from heart disease under the age of 50. And then, because I've got a curious mind, I suppose, I thought, what is the difference, of course, hormones? So if we think of menopause, the word is just stopping menstrual cycle. Um, and perimenopause is around the time of our period stopping. So the actual definition to make a clinical diagnosis, you have to have not had a period for a year or more. Well, that's really quite difficult for those women who've had a hysterectomy, have a marina coil in or using contraception, or maybe have PCOS or another condition not having many periods. So it's a retrospective diagnosis, which is quite unusual, isn't it, for medicine? We normally try and make the diagnosis at the time. So I, um, if you think what happens in the menopause, obviously our ovaries either are removed, causing a surgical menopause, or they don't work because usually we get older and our eggs, um, we only have a finite number, of course, so our eggs deplete, so our hormones associated with our ovaries uh, stop being produced. Um, so the menopause obviously affects periods. There's quite a few gynecologists will talk about it, you know, post-reproductive health. They'll think about it's the time when we are no longer fertile. But actually thinking about our hormones, getting in our bloodstream, going to every cell in our body, 
affecting our brain, then we know that when our hormone levels reduce, it can cause symptoms. And the menopause symptoms list is as long as your arm or longer, actually, depends on what you read. And every day I hear new new symptoms from patients. Um, but the commonest symptoms we always have been talked about or taught about is the vasomotor symptoms of flushes, sweats, but not everyone gets them. But when we look with the balance up, actually, the most common symptoms are memory problems, anxiety, low mood, poor sleep. Vasomotor symptoms are quite low down on the list. And this is because estradiol and testosterone and progesterone are neurotransmitters. They affect the function of other neurotransmitters in the brain and other hormones as well. So um, there's all these different symptoms that can occur. But when you look at the studies, symptoms can last for seven, 10 years, sometimes 20. Sometimes people say they don't have symptoms. But more importantly than that is that when your hormone levels are low, you've got this pro-inflammatory state in your body um, and that increases risk of diseases. And we know from many, many studies that the longer a woman is without her hormones, the greater risk of diseases, including heart disease, osteoporosis, diabetes, dementia, and so forth. And so this is where I think we should be thinking about the menopause as not an inconvenience, but a marker of disease actually the same way that we treat hypertension it doesn't really cause symptoms even or for most people it doesn't but we treat it to reduce cardiovascular risk and the same with menopause but because for the last 20 years everyone's been scared away from hrt we've thought that's not really an option so therefore women just battle on and suffer and you know we know the suffering even periods or pms can um, lead to women you know missing days at work or struggling but a lot of women are thinking, well, the menopause is just a process, a natural process we have to go through. But it's not really a transition. We don't go through our menopause and come out something else. Once we have low hormones, they're low all the time, our bodies can adjust and we might have our symptoms changing. Um, but there's a lot of suffering going on and there's a lot of medicalization of the menopause occurring you know we see a lot of women who are on antidepressants a lot of women who are on painkillers a lot of women who take sleeping tablets a lot of women who have recurrent urinary tract infections and having um, antibiotics you know a lot of people taking migraine tablets the list goes on and palpitations you know antiarrhythmics the list goes on and on so that's why it's so important that whatever specialty of medicine someone's in I think they all need to know about the menopause so they can recognize it. And um, even pediatricians, my youngest patient was 14 when she realized she was menopausal. She had streak ovaries, they didn't develop. She was sitting in her double maths class with such awful vaginal dryness, being unable to concentrate, had no idea what was going on and neither did her parents. So we need to really think and reframe it almost. And I'd love to almost, you know, call it a female hormone deficiency rather than menopause. Because if you Google menopause, you'll get white women, it's always Caucasian women, with a fan and they usually got grey hair. Well, I don't identify as those people. And certainly people in ethnic minorities really don't identify with white middle class women with a fan or a glass of hot water. It's it's just wrong. We need to think about the biological effects of our hormones. Um, and I'm not saying everyone has to take HRT, but we need to know that as menopausal women, we have an increased risk of disease. So we need to be thinking about our cardiovascular health, our bone health, our brain health, and what we're going to do about it. And we need to be educating our patients so that they can make informed choices about what they want to do as well. Yeah. 
thank you for that. That was a really helpful kind of overview of of menopause and and thinking about HRT when well I suppose not when but what are the kind of things that would make make you as a clinician think about like, like when should we be thinking about actually perhaps this um yeah and it's this, like is, this, is what's, this is what's really difficult actually because there isn't um like I say a blood test for the menopause when you look at the menopause nice guidance or the international menopause guidance they say if women have POI so premature ovarian insufficiency so that's menopause under the age of 40 we should be doing at least two FSH levels six weeks apart now FSH levels really vary especially in the perimenopause they can go up and down sometimes people can have suppression of their FSH levels for example if they're on quetiapine because that increases prolactin suppresses fsh which will then suppress estradiol and testosterone i've seen so many women who are obviously menopausal or perimenopausal with normal fsh levels so doing a test isn't helpful one of the reasons i developed the balanced menopause app which is free is so that people can there's the commonest symptoms there people can start to monitor them and if the symptoms start to occur and there's no other obvious reason, then it's worth reflecting and thinking, could it be the hormones? And some women who've had a bit of PMS or a dip just before their periods might find that those symptoms are similar, but they're just occurring for longer time. So women can often make the diagnosis themselves. There's a real concern in the medical uh, profession that we're missing other diagnoses. So, you know, I've got... Um, um, one lady recently who was diagnosed with a brain tumour, but she also had brain fog. She also had memory loss. Um, how do I know whether it's a brain tumour or menopause? But actually with her, she also had vasomotor symptoms. She had muscle and joint pain. She had dry eyes. She had burning mouth and she was 52. But she was obviously menopausal. So with her, it still gave her HRT, but she also had this sort of weird aura and a sort of taste in her mouth which just you know in medicine you sometimes have this gut feeling that things aren't quite right so we referred her for a scan and she's got a brain tumor she can still take her hrt um but that's the same in lots of things in medicine you know we, there's often more than one diagnosis but people seem very scared to think about the menopause at all or leave it till right at the end um and i'm not quite sure why i think it's because people think HRT is more dangerous than perhaps it is. Yeah, um, and I guess you know it's it's interesting to kind of explore that kind of negativity with with mm. HRT. Why why do you think people are scared to to prescribe it? Yeah, I think there's lots of reasons actually. Um, and with HRT, what we prescribe now is very different to the HRT that we prescribed 20 years ago. So we prescribe this body identical hormones. So it's der they're derived from yam plants. They're very safe. They're the same molecular structure as the hormones we produce ourselves. And we normally give estrogen through the skin as a patch gel or spray. So it goes through the skin straight into the bloodstream. So then it works straight away. There's no risk of clot or stroke in that way. And the natural progesterone as well, which again has no cardiovascular or thrombotic risk. Um, and testosterone, if people need it, again, gel or, or, or cream through the skin. In the old days, we used to give oral estrogen and conjugated equine estrogen, so from pregnant horses' urine, which obviously no one really wants to take, and synthetic progesterone, so the same progesterones that are in the contraceptive pills, but they have a small clot risk and a small cardiovascular risk, fine when you're an 18-year-old, but not so fine when you're a 58-year-old. 
But the big nail in the coffin for HRT is the Women's Health Initiative study, the WHI study that came out now uh, over 20 years ago in 2002. And that was looking at um, trying to see if if there were benefits giving HRT to older women. So the average age of that study, as you might know, was 64. A lot of women were overweight, obese, had had cardiovascular disease. They had to be asymptomatic to enter the study because it was an RCT. And when you give women HRT, especially if they've got vasomotor symptoms, they melt away so quickly, you would soon know who the placebo group were. So they gave the HRT. They weren't really finding huge results. So they then noticed that there was a slight sort of blip over the line for breast cancer risk. Rather than analyzing the data properly, they just some of the researchers went to the, the press, the, the lay press, but also the medical press. Some of the other investigators said, please don't do this. We need to analyze it properly. And they said, it's too late, it's gone. So overnight, we were told that HRT causes breast cancer. Women by the millions stop taking HRT. When they analyzed the data properly, um, they found that this increased risk with combination HRT was not statistically significant. Um, the risk factors for breast cancer, such as not exercising, drinking alcohol, um, or smoking were a higher risk than taking HRT. And then they also looked at the group who'd had a hysterectomy who only had estrogen. And they found that there was a 22% relative, not absolute risk reduction in breast cancer for women taking estrogen only. And any type of HRT, there was a lower risk of dying from breast cancer. But they also found when women started HRT early, so within 10 years of the menopause, they had a lower risk of heart disease. They also had a lower risk of osteoporosis as well. Um, So, but people still talk about the breast cancer risk and it's there if we try and prescribe HRT, it comes up with a warning. It also, you know, even vaginal, hormones it says risk of breast cancer it's impossible for something such a low dose that's inserted in your vagina to increase risk of heart disease but it's it's this sort of misperception actually and when I was talking about John Sanders at the beginning it's really relevant to this conversation because it's about sharing with patients so even if that risk the worst paper showing the worst risk was really real for all types of HRT which it's not been shown to then women can choose and personally as a menopausal woman I'm more scared of osteoporosis than I am about breast cancer so I can choose to take HRT to reduce my risk of osteoporosis and nice guidance saint reduces risk of fragility factors now one in seven will get breast cancer whether they take HRT or not. I might be that one in seven, I don't know. I'm not going to blame my HRT, but I, I'm also not overweight. I don't smoke, I don't drink alcohol. So I'm reducing my risk that way. But that's me personally. But this is where we need to involve women in the conversation. And this is the problem. I see women every day in my clinic who are told, no, you can't have HRT. You can buy a relaxation tape or you can take citalopram or you're too young to be menopausal or you've gone through it now because you're 60. Um, so it's this whole sort of suppression of women and this medical gaslighting, sadly, that is going on, uh, not for every woman, of course, but for some women. And it's a shame because I worry about global health. I worry about the health economy. You know, 40% of the NHS employees are menopausal women and most of those aren't getting treatment so we need to we need to realize and think what's going on I think yeah and if um if there are postmenopausal women who 
um, I think you said like within 10 years of menopause, you can start HRT. If they're within that that period, but they're not actually having symptoms um, and they're sort of thinking, well, I don't really like think I need HRT. Is, is there still that risk, that increased risk of the heart disease and the osteoporosis? Yes. Yeah. So it's there's, there's a couple of things there, really. One of the things is the WHI study was showing and, and some of the others using the older types of HRT showed within 10 years. When we give transdermal estrogen and the natural progesterone, we can start it in older women because it hasn't been shown to have an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. Um, The other thing is, is that um, when you look at evidence for reducing risk of cardiovascular disease, osteoporosis, type 2 diabetes, even clinical depression, there is evidence that it reduces risk. When you look at the um, uh, there's a consensus statement that's come from America recently saying there isn't enough um, evidence to reduce risk of, of disease for women taking HRT. What they have said in asymptomatic women, and that's because the studies haven't been done in asymptomatic women. But actually, I've never really truly met a woman who's completely asymptomatic. So I see women who say, no, I've, I've gone through the menopause. I don't have any symptoms anymore. And I'll say, what's your sleep like? Awful. Or, Do you have any urinary symptoms? Oh, I can't cough or sneeze. Any muscle or joint pains? Oh, yes. But, you know, that's just in the morning when I'm going down the stairs. Any, you know, dry eyes, any, you know. And so often when I give HRT to people, they come back and go, wow, I had no idea I was feeling so irritable, so low. I was didn't realize my anxiety was due to my hormones. <laughs> Um, so and and why would it be a difference that whether you have symptoms or not that estrogen works in a different way um, of course it's going to work in the same biologically active way there is a bit of methylation of the receptors so as people get older estrogen might not work in the same way or it might take a bit longer to work because obviously the body's adapted without estrogen but I've started women on HRT who are in their 80s we had one lady who came for her 90th birthday she wanted to take HRT trying it is very low risk you know and then women decide don't they and if they want to stop it if I stop my HRT today it will be out of my system tomorrow so it's it's not like the implants it's very safe yeah well thank you so much for that really helpful whistle stop tour through like through menopause I think it's really important that we think about it and and that you know as you said all of us in all specialties um, mm. think about it understand it know about it so that then we, we are giving our patients the the right information um, and of course you know a lot of the listeners of this podcast will be perimenopausal or menopausal women um, and that's why I wanted us to to do this episode because I think it's it's not you know it, it's up to all of us to make things better for for mm. those women um, I just have some quick fire questions for you now, if that's yeah, okay. Um, so my first question is, is there a book or several books that you would recommend for all um, medical women to read? Well, of course, I was going to say my book, aren't I? It's, although I've written a, oh, I've written three books on the menopause, but my last one is a hardback. It's the definitive guide for the perimenopause and menopause. Um, and I know it's a medical audience, but in fact, I was just, I do a weekly podcast as well. And I was doing a podcast for a professor um, of gynecology, who's fantastic, talking about the health benefits of HRT. Um, and he held up his copy of the book with lots of tabs in. And he said, Louise, I think every medical student and every doctor should read this. Um, because I've written it in a very reference way. We've got over 300 references in it. So people can go to the you know original articles if they want to find out more. Um, it's very few 
other books that are specifically for menopause. Um, so often it's just buried away in a gynae book, but it just talks about vaginal dryness or vasomotor symptoms. Um, so we've also done a education program with, with 14 Fish called Confidence in the Menopause, um, which is a free course that people can download and, and watch and do. We've videoed ourselves doing consultations with actresses with different scenarios. And then we've linked it to the evidence as well. So people can read the evidence. We've got other lectures there as well. So we've had over 30,000 downloads of that. And in fact, I bumped into someone on, in the airport when I was flying back from a conference a couple of weeks ago, who was a GP and she recognized me and she said, Louise, I'd just like to say thank you. She said, because I use your course all the time for teaching and it's just been amazing because it's seeing, seeing things in practice. Because even when I wrote all these articles, I then went and sat in um, John Studd and then Nick Panay's clinic, who are both menopause specialists. John, John Studd sadly died now, but in London, because I wanted to see, you know, in medicine, it's you can know all the theory, can't you? But you want to know, how do I talk to these women? How do I prescribe? What happens when they come back and they're still having symptoms? What's the maximum dose? What's What, how, what about testosterone? How do we prescribe that? So I, I sort of learned loads and we used to have people sitting in our clinic, but then so many people want to, it's quite hard and intrusive for the women sometimes. So we did this course. And so that's anybody, I don't even have to be healthcare professionals, but anyone can do it. And we made it free because I thought once I've done it, I just want to get it out to people really. Yeah. Oh, that sounds great. Um, yeah, that'd be great if you could send us the link or put it in the, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. For, and for just for medicine. complete transparency, myself and nobody who works with Newson Health, we don't work with pharma at all. We don't do any paid work with pharma um, or endorse any products or anything. So there's no hidden agenda behind any of this. It's really important for people to know because a lot of the, the menopause specialist um, societies do get money from pharma. And you can argue whether that's a good or bad thing, but I've decided when I open my company to not, because I think then we can say what, what we know. And a lot of it is based on clinical experience as well, which is important. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, with um, like, I am one of your many Instagram followers and it's really helpful seeing the, the content that that you create on there and putting things on there um and i think you know more and more of us are trying to do those sorts of things now i'd, I'd love if you could share some of your advice for, for anyone that's thinking of getting started creating content on anything well in fact someone was asking me about it this morning and i i think people don't realize that i had no plan what i was doing and with instagram in fact my 20 year old was, was about she must be about 13 um so seven years ago and I wanted to follow her on Instagram because I was a protective mother and wanted to see what she was doing and so I asked her to show me how to do it and then she's very artistic she said oh mommy you should just put a post on every day you keep coming home and telling us about these awful stories and what women are telling you about how they're feeling why don't you just put a post on every day so oh, I don't know so she created a few pictures for me I started putting on and then I started to get lots of engagement. I was thinking, oh, goodness. And so, you know, seven years later, I've got nearly half a million followers. Um, but it's been a very organic thing, really. Um, I've just tried. But I suppose what I have tried is to engage with people. It's really difficult, though, because I always say I do not respond to DMs. And I can't tell you the number of DMs that I have responded to. And a lot of people that I have helped without them charged because some of them are in real crisis and have nowhere else to go. Um, I picked up a lady recently whose daughter had reached out to me and she was 62, the mother, 
and uh, no, in fact, that's a lie. She was she was forty eight, and she'd had her ovaries removed because she had fibroids. She was an Afro Caribbean London lady in London. She had her fibroids removed, as, and the, the doctor said, "Well, you're nearly fifty. Let's just take out your ovaries as well." Her periods had been heavy, and hence her fibroids. So she said, "Okay, that's fine." And then she went to um, the uh, went after the operation. She was coming to in recovery and phoned her husband and said, "This is awful. Something terrible has happened. I'm really scared. I'm really, really scared." And fast forward a, a few days, she tried to kill herself by banging her head against a wall. Was sectioned and went, went to a psychiatric hospital for several weeks. And her daughter then messaged me on Instagram and said, "I'm really worried about my mother." Um, that she kept saying, I think it's my hormones. And they said, no, it won't be. It won't have happened that quickly. Um, lo and behold, obviously, she's got her hormones back and she's absolutely fine. So there's, I'm learning a lot, not just from my patients as well. So um, it's, it's a fine line with social media because you don't want to abuse your position as a doctor. It's really important to make sure that, you know, things that I say are right. And I, I often engage some of the people I have done podcasts with who are, you know, academic professors, use their voices as well because there's quite a few people trying to silence me behind the scenes but it's not just my word it's it's words from other people's work and science and evidence so it's useful to work with others as well if that makes sense yeah yeah well thank you so much it's been um, lovely having you on the podcast and thank you for, for everything that you're doing get, getting you know getting everybody talking about menopause and understanding menopause so that we can make things better for so many women Oh, thank you. Thanks for inviting me again. Thank you so much for listening to the Medical Women podcast. Make sure to subscribe for free on whichever podcast platform you listen on so that you automatically get our episodes. The aim of this podcast is to support and empower as many medical women in their careers as we possibly can. So please share this episode with at least one other medical woman. If you're interested in joining the Medical Women's Federation, we would love to have you and all links to our website and social media are in the show notes. This podcast has been produced on behalf of the Medical Women's Federation by Dr. Nathana Bayankaram and Ms. Jenna McKenzie. Our music was composed and played by Dr. Keith Bayankaram. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>